Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Alexis McGill-Johnson says she spent her last year on the road. How many states have you visited? Oh, my goodness. I wish I had a number off the top of my head. I've been um, quite throughout the South. I've been to, you know, Missouri. I've been to Illinois. I've been to North Carolina. I've been to Texas. Each one of these trips took Alexis to a different abortion clinic. She's the president of Planned Parenthood. So this cross-country trek is just one of the ways she's been trying to understand the impact of what happened a year ago when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Everywhere I go, Van states, you know, the first thing you, you hear when you walk into a, a clinic is the silence. Like the lack of access that is happening um, when you are in certain parts that have, have been set up to provide the, the care they're able to. Are they literally empty? Like the phones aren't ringing? No, I mean, it's like you go into like a recovery room that you would expect to be, um, you know, filled with patients and you, um, it's empty. I wonder if in some ways you've kind of seen a tale of two clinics, like clinics that are both very quiet and then clinics that are very loud. Yes, you're, you're hearing the tears, right? And sometimes you don't know if it's the patients crying, if it's the providers crying, if it's the frontline, you know, health center clinician staff that's, that's crying, but it's all about, you know, going into, you know, rapid response mode, helping them find an appointment, helping them think through how are they going to, you know, get childcare, get hotel, like make a literal plan to get from point A to point B. Over the last year, Alexis's job has been to figure out how to deal with this newly bifurcated healthcare landscape, how to deal with both clinics that have gone silent and clinics that have been mobbed. One Planned Parenthood clinic in California saw the influx in patients coming from Arizona soar by 847% this past year. And abortion, it's still legal in Arizona. It's only banned after 15 weeks. Alexis is clear-eyed about the situation. She said it's unsustainable for Planned Parenthood. But what she's done just this month to address these changes, it may surprise you. Planned Parenthood just announced layoffs. It's estimated that about 14% of its national staff will be out as of July. You've said basically, Rose gone, and that means Planned Parenthood has to change. And I think I, I think it's just an interesting moment for your organization. Your political opponents are are casting these layoffs as a kind of victory, like an acknowledgement that Planned Parenthood is in retreat. What would you say to them? Our fundraising revenue continues to be strong. People have supported the organization and we project the same budget this year. So this is actually not a function of 
uh, strengthen our support or strengthen our resources. It's a it's a need to reallocate resources in a way that meets the moment on the ground. You know, Planned Parenthood's been around for over a hundred years, but we were built, you know, to defend Roe. Today on the show, a year after Roe v. Wade was overturned, Planned Parenthood is making big changes. Will they be enough? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Alexis McGill-Johnson isn't new to Planned Parenthood. She served on the organization's board for a decade. But when she was tapped to lead both the Planned Parenthood Federation of America and its political advocacy arm, it was in part to do some major damage control. Her predecessor, Dr. Leanna Wen, was forced out of the job in 2019 after less than a year in the role. Since then, Alexis has been at the helm of the nation's largest abortion provider at a time when the anti-abortion movement has been racking up wins. At the same time, Planned Parenthood has faced criticism from the left— Black feminist advocates for reproductive justice have long taken issue with Planned Parenthood's historic focus on choice over bodily autonomy. And in a blistering article in The New Yorker last month, independent abortion providers lamented what they saw as Planned Parenthood's reluctance to be more aggressive in their legal fight for abortion rights. To say that McGill Johnson takes issue with this framing is an understatement. But she also says the layoffs she's overseeing our chance to course correct and move her organization forward. For a very long time, we have spent our fight at the federal level trying to protect the courts um, because the courts were our backstop, trying to protect our federal legislation because that was would ensure um, access uh, and protection of our you know constitutional rights. We are no longer in that moment. And so the shift to ensure that we can fight locally as well as with that federal power really is the intent behind the restructure. So what will losing staffing at the national level allow you to do in the states? You know, first of all, we're investing in kind of big healthcare infrastructure for our affiliates to help the patient experience be more seamless. We are doing things like we've invested in, um, you know, electronic medical records. So patients who 
you know, start off in in Texas, but need to get to Illinois and see a Planned Parenthood provider and then have a seamless experience and they all stay in the in the same system. You know, we have 49 unique individually affiliated uh, organizations who deliver the healthcare, and it is important for us to make sure that the the experience of entering into Planned Parenthood is is solid, particularly in states that are surge states. Uh, it means that we are able to um, see patients via telehealth and open up spaces in the clinics for people who are traveling in. So ensuring that that continues um, to be seamless. I was speaking to uh, an abortion advocate in the South, and one question they had was, you know. They felt like it had been really hard to get doctors down there to perform abortions, even before Dobbs, just because it's far and the doctors didn't necessarily live in state where they were. And one question they had was, will Planned Parenthood be training more doctors to perform abortions? You know, we have such a patchwork right now and people who want to be doctors are having to make decisions about where they get trained based on the laws. And there's a real lack of providers. Is that something you think you'll be doing as part of your restructuring? Uh, yes, absolutely. In fact, um, that is a, a key part of, of work that we are doing, which is uh, essentially funding a service core, right? A provider core where we will be able to support providers tuition repayment as a way of you know, asking for service in communities that are underserved. Uh, we have in the South a premier abortion training center, which, you know, obviously now may not be able to uh, provide the care that we do there, the training that we do there. So we're exploring all kinds of opportunities in partnership with universities and medical schools. Do you think you'll be opening new clinics? I think uh, Planned Parenthood affiliates open clinics every, you know, every year and they they make decisions based on where their population is and where their needs are. They're, they're community-centered and they decide where where um, where to provide the health care and how to do that. And our job at the national office is to support their decisions in doing that. I understand why you'd want to make this pivot to put re- more resources in the states, because right now we don't have a federal abortion policy. We have this state-by-state patchwork. I do see a wrinkle in this strategy, though, which is that historically, and I'm not saying you know during your time as president, but historically, I think... There have been issues of trust between local abortion providers and Planned Parenthood. I know there was this article in The New Yorker recently that was pretty meticulously reported in which local abortion providers basically said they, you are a, a partner who they need desperately, but they'd found themselves frustrated by the fact that Planned Parenthood would sometimes come in and establish clinics in areas where independent providers were already operating, meaning independent providers would have to close up shop. I wonder what your reaction was when you heard those local abortion providers raising real concerns, also with great respect for the work and partnership that they have with you. I do take exception with the article, which you may characterize as meticulously reported. I think it was actually a very um, sloppy example of journalism. I was on the board, Mary, when Planned Parenthood made a very significant decision to provide abortion care as part of our core services. And those conversations in the boardroom were about what would be the conversations that are local CEOs would have with independent providers as they made decisions to expand access to care. I think the the other thing that I would say 
you know, I do want to affirm the tensions between independent providers and Planned Parenthood. Like this is not like a kumbaya relationship, um, you know, in a way that sitting at the, the table with each other and understanding that the, there is a resource difference and there is a, um, a, a way in which we are organized and structured difference. And, and you know, and, I, and that definitely has impact um, on a considerable impact on independent providers. And I have, you know, spent time with, you know, leaders of associations and independent providers themselves. And many of our providers also provide at independent clinics. So the relationship is not as stark as, you know, um, us versus them. Um, and I also recognize the the privilege of leading an organization that has significant um, financial resources and, and support um, that comes from the fact that you know, one in four people has been to Planned Parenthood in their lifetime, right? We've been there with some of the most most intimate times of people's lives, and you know, and I, and people continue to to support it. And I understand how that creates a um, uh, a power differential. You know, I spoke to a former Planned Parenthood employee who lamented the fact that Planned Parenthood is still a reproductive health organization. I wonder if that's your project moving Planned Parenthood from a reproductive health frame to reproductive justice and what that would mean five years down the line? Um, It is not my project to become a reproductive justice organization. We are a, well, I may be a Black woman, a proud Black woman and and Black womanist and feminist. Um, That does not make me a reproductive justice leader um, while I Mm. sit at the head of Planned Parenthood. Um, which has been a largely predominantly white organization uh, in its leadership. And while much of that has changed, you know, during my tenure, even, um, I still don't think any of us in leadership, particularly those of us, uh, Black women and other leaders of color, believe that our project is to become a reproductive justice organization. Why not? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Because I, that would be stealing the labor of the Black women who have been fighting and holding the conscious of the, you know, of the reproductive um, rights, health, and justice movement um, for over 20 years, who have, you know, um, always demonstrated the the value and importance of intersectionality and why we needed to bake that into our work. So I have an initiative, a Black Health Equity Initiative, that, you know, where I'm asking the questions of ourselves, how do we how do we redesign our infrastructure so that we can be one of the best places for Black women and femmes to get their health care? What would it take for us to do that? How do we address bias in our own healthcare system? How do we ensure that communities are part of the way in which we are designing what set of services are going to be provided, particularly as we redesign new business models in banned states? Do you think Planned Parenthood ever could be a reproductive justice organization? Or you think, no, that's just not its role. It's not what it does. It has a history. <laughs> that's not that's not our role. That, that is absolutely not our role. And I think we need to protect and support reproductive justice organizations and their leadership and invest in them. And, you know, I, a lot of what I've done over the last few years is has, you know, has been to um, talk to our supporters and our donors why, about why it is important to have a very strong ecosystem. Um, of reproductive justice leaders and and the work and the innovation that they are doing. We'll be right back after a break. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... 
First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Hey, What Next listeners. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more about what this year without guaranteed abortion rights has been like and what to expect in the future, check out The Waves. This week, Slate senior writer Christina Cotarucci sits down with different women to get their perspectives on how the year has been, like journalist Jessica Valenti, who's been writing about abortion every single day. We knew it would be bad. We didn't know it would be this horrible this quickly. Check out The Waves wherever you get your podcasts. Can we talk about Planned Parenthood's political priorities now and and how you think about them. I know you've talked about, for instance, rethinking the Supreme Court, thinking bigger, thinking about court expansion. How did you come to the realization that that was necessary? And do you think that's realistic, given the fact that the Biden administration has been squeamish about the idea of court expansion, making sure there's more justices to hear cases at this time? Look, I don't think that our job is to solely focus on what is practical in the moment, right? I think our job is to help people understand why they can't have uh, what they want in the state in which they live and to help connect those dots, not just through the, the lack of healthcare provision that they are receiving, um, but also the uh, the lack of democratic autonomy that they uh, are experiencing because of the restrictions on voting rights. And obviously, the natural extension of that is the court system, right? We have seen a court be captured um, where you have one judge in the Northern District of of Texas, in Amarillo, Judge Matt Kaczmarek, 
be able to, you know, weigh in on whether or not the entire country has access to mifepristone, uh, you know, the first pill of medication abortion that is widely used and to challenge 20 plus years of, of FDA um, of approval. And so I think that it was important for us to be able to shift, I guess, what we call the Overton window, right, from what is what is uh, previously unthinkable to to what might become inevitable over time, um, I think is a central role that we can play with our platform. Yeah, it feels like you're really interested in moonshots right now because you're talking about court expansion. You're also talking about a constitutional amendment that guarantees access to reproductive health care. That also seems like a big ask given that, you know, we don't have an equal rights amendment, you know. So how do you see that working? Look, I do believe that that we are in a moonshot moment. I think that, you know, we got to the moon because we set an intention that we wanted to go to the moon. And then we decided, you know, which industries were going to help us do that and and what federal resources were going to help us get there, what skill sets and capabilities we needed to do that. And I think we're in that same moment. Um, but I think it's a little bit easier than planning and plotting to get to the moon. I think actually the majority of people are on the side of reproductive freedom. What they need to understand is who is responsible for denying them access to their reproductive freedom and their rights. They need to understand how the systems and structures got there, the the intense years of gerrymandering and court capture that got us here. And they need to have a plan of what to do about it. And so I do think we can get to a constitutional amendment. I think we can get to an ERA 3.0 or 2.0, whatever it looks like. I think we can actually do some real, uh, you know, some work to get back into the constitution, but it will never get there if we don't declare the intention to get there. Do you ever look backwards? Because I was I was really interested in the fact that your predecessors had conflicting reactions to the post-Dobbs landscape. Like Cecile Richards, who was a longtime president of Planned Parenthood, wrote in the New York Times that she'd been naive about her role in guaranteeing the right to abortion. Like she said, she believed that providing vital health care with, with public opinion on our side would be enough to overcome the political onslaught. And obviously that wasn't the case. But Faye Waddleton, who is the youngest and first black president of Planned Parenthood, had such a different reaction. She said, I'm baffled that anyone's baffled that we got here, basically. Like, it means you weren't paying attention if you're surprised. And we have to look in the mirror and say, we allowed this to happen. It's like the, it's like the flip, and they'd had the same job. Do you, do you think about that? Well, I mean, look, folks, First, both dear friends um, and people I respect uh, deeply, and I understand how each of them comes to their conclusions. But I lived through a good portion of that time, you know, with Cecile. I joined her board in 2011 or so. I was her board chair for two years, and we were screaming, right? There was no question that we were screaming that something could happen. But I do think that we were all a little bit over reliant on the courts as our backstop. I think what surprises me in looking back was how emboldened the opposition was in standing in their power and defying norms of democratic participation in order to preserve power. I think about Senator McConnell holding Merrick Garland's seat for 11 months under Barack Obama while, you know, pushing through Amy Coney Barrett in, I don't know, what, three weeks. Like many, we were horrified at the um, the way in which the the right and the opposition has been willing to sacrifice democracy for the sake of control. And that's where I think, you know, that's where I think, you know, we really need to pay attention. I often speak not just about reproductive freedom 
these days, but, you know, constantly trying to draw the connection between, you know, abortion and democracy and why that is so important. That's why I'm talking about court reform. That's why I'm talking about, you know, voting rights. That's why I'm talking about trans care. Um, because I do think that, you know, when when you have a an opposition that is willing to do whatever it can to control our bodies for the sake of power, you end up in an authoritarian um, world. And we should all be fighting against that. Alexis, I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks for offering it. And thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much, Mary. Alexis McGill-Johnson is the CEO of Planned Parenthood. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. I'm handing the reins off to Lizzie O'Leary and the What Next TBD crew for now. I'll be back in this feed on Monday. Talk to you then. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.